One of the things my mentor, Albert Murray, says is that jazz developed within the context of free enterprise. And there's a distinction between free enterprise and capitalism, okay? But the point is that, and it's not necessarily just an economic, it's an orientation to how we engage with one another. You can have competition, but there's also cooperation. In fact, you need to have both. There's confrontation and challenge, but then there's embrace and acceptance. But all of those are part of this free enterprise system where it's not coming down from on high. It's not being dictated by a central committee. None of that. This is within the context of democracy. One of the beauties of jazz is that it actually is an embodiment and an enactment of the realization of democratic principles and values in sound and in action. Greetings, future fossils. This is paleontologist, futurist Michael Garfield welcoming you back for episode 205, a podcast that explores our place in time. I mean that literally, our place in time. Until very recently, I worked at the Santa Fe Institute for almost five years. This is a place where former Future Fossils guest, the evolutionary theorist Stuart Kaufman, whom I interviewed on episode 125, helped pioneer a theory of rugged fitness landscapes, landscapes of possibility, mathematical objects that allow researchers to visualize what opportunities are available to organisms based on what they are right now, what possibilities are available to ecosystems based on the technological and political resources available. Years after Stu Kaufman helped midwife the idea of the NK fitness landscape into the scientific lexicon, other people came forward and suggested that this rugged landscape may not be a solid object, but that sometimes change happens so rapidly that the landscape of possibility boils, that doors to different futures open and close in ways that are extremely difficult to predict. In the other podcast I launched, hosted, and produced for the Santa Fe Institute, Complexity Podcast, one of my favorite episodes was with mathematician Tyler Margitis, now at UC Merced, who looked at the ways that jazz ensembles improvising together can be studied with quantitative methods and that those methods can determine when the entire flock of musicians is about to pivot and twist into a new musical motif. These moments are not unlike the moments that the landscape of possibility boils. These are moments that philosopher Robert Anton Wilson talked about as chapel perilous, a transitional crucible between the personal and transpersonal in the journey of a psychonaut. When everything starts connecting to everything else, everything is suffused with meaning and starts making too much sense, and either you pass through the gauntlet of superconciliant hyperconnectivity into metanoia, into a stable new state of consciousness, or you lose your mind. Now, I'm not the first person by any measure to draw correlations between the phenomenology of psychedelics and what we are living through right now as a planet. Alan Combs, many years ago, wrote a book on chaos theory and states of consciousness. 
And generally speaking, hundreds of scholars have talked about bifurcation catastrophes in both mind and ecology. So what am I getting at here? Firstly, that there is a deep underlying commonality in the structure between the passage from one way of being into another as a person moving through phenomenal qualitative states and the passage from one world era into another on a much larger spatio-temporal scale. That we might be in a kind of gloaming or hypnagogic or hypnopompic state between one world age and the next. What Charles Eisenstein in his writing and in our conversation for Future Fossils episode 85 called the space between stories. A space characterized by what Future Fossils guest Doug Rushkoff called narrative collapse in his book Present Shock, which was a huge inspiration to the show. And of course, I was pleased to see Doug years after I gave a talk on the internet as a psychedelic substance at the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, a talk you can find on my YouTube channel, made the same point in an essay that he wrote about the internet as LSD. You can see the functional connectivity of a psilocybin-influenced brain increase, and those diagrams look just like the maps that people have made of the World Wide Web. And you see the same type of autocorrelation spike in the studies that Margitis was making of jazz ensembles right before the break drops and they swing into some new pattern. There's no judgment to be made here in contrasting the characteristics of one state of mind with those of another or of one world age with those of another. Historical epochs are just different. They abide by different rules. But the point is that sometimes you have to throw away the sheet music you've been playing from and listen carefully to the other members of your group. And sometimes things are too noisy even for that and you simply have to roll the dice and hope for the best. These complicated, complex, and chaotic regimes are perhaps not so much ontological categories. There you go, folks. <laughs> There's my drinking bingo use of ontological. So much as they are about the relationship between the pace at which we can individually and collectively process information and respond to the world around us, and the pace at which the world itself is changing. The Long Now Foundation's Stuart Brand created and popularized a diagram of these so-called pace layers, the slowest of which on Earth are geology, the fastest fashion. But these layers are in no permanently fixed order. Occasionally, as we see all around us in the so-called Anthropocene, the relatively small and fast layer of human society swaps with and leaves a permanent record in the geological pace layer. We live in an upside-down, distorted funhouse world right now in this particular age of transition, one in which futures markets determine the spatial scope and biodiversity of entire rainforests, one in which the whims of billionaires permanently reshape the media landscape, creating and abolishing internet agore. How do you confidently set sail and tack into the wind when the wind keeps changing? 
when the maps you're using no longer correlate with mutable ocean currents. Well, friends, this is when we need to lean in to one another, open our minds to possibilities that had once seemed closed, seriously consider the unthinkable, and learn the value to leadership of jazz. Those of you who have been listening to the show for a while know that I intended to dedicate most of this year's episodes to the theme of improvisation. Being a professional improviser myself in conversation, in music, and in visual art, not to mention parenting, the work of Greg Thomas and Jewel Kinch Thomas at the Jazz Leadership Project is very dear to my heart. Those who remember episode 196 I recorded with Robert Poynton, someone who also teaches improvisation in corporate spaces. Well, you know how crucial and important I believe this to be and why it strikes me that people affecting change in these spaces deserve as much attention as we can give them right now. So it is with great pleasure that after much patient rescheduling, I can finally share this conversation with Greg Thomas and our mutual friend, Stephanie Lepp, former executive director for the Institute for Cultural Evolution and former executive producer at the Center for Humane Technology, who joins me as a guest co-host in a trialogue exploring jazz leadership and how to apply principles from both the musical world and the world of evolutionary biology to establish more fruitful synthetic discourse in the United States and elsewhere. But before we dive into this episode, I want to give my deep and lasting thanks to every single person who is supporting this show on Patreon or on Substack, or by buying my artwork, or by making one-off donations, because until I get the next thing figured out, this is it. Future Fossils is the money that I'm making to support my family, and that's insane. (laughs) It's just not sustainable right now, but every little thing helps. And in the time since my departure from SFI, my profound appreciation for every single one of you helping me make some money on this show, literally helping me keep the lights on and keep food in the bellies of my kids. I mean, I know I'm not the only person having a real year, but a lot of you are, and you are still helping, and I cannot thank you enough. I'd like to give a special shout out right now to those new supporters, folks that have started chipping in since the last episode. Mark Corey, Peter Serato, Illumined Dark, Sebastian Machuca, Rex Washburn, Gregory Landua, Tiffany, Keith Singery, Glupo96, Van Loitz, Neil Porter. You're amazing and I value your contributions, however small or large, from the bottom of my heart. All of you equally so. If you've been on the fence about becoming a patron, now is the time because I have created whole new areas available only to members in the Discord server and in my regular Substack and Patreon mailings. I'm doing a lot more of the work of commenting on and synthesizing other people's articles and podcasts and so on as I ramp up work on my second book manuscript. We've been doing live book club calls again. 
and I just recorded a ton of amazing stuff at the Psychedelic Science Conference, some of which will be made freely publicly available, and other stuff I will be reserving for patrons only. So the next few months are going to be a glorious efflorescence for future fossils, and I'm excited about all the stuff I've already captured and will be making available to you on a much more frequent basis as we move into the fall. So, yeah, now's the time. Please subscribe at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield or michaelgarfield.substack.com or, you know, take those fat stacks you're making on the new psychedelic industry and deposit them at Future Fossils on Venmo. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Shameless plugs over. Thank you for listening. I am honored to welcome you to this trialogue with Greg Thomas and Stephanie Lepp. Thanks for listening. Reach out anytime and enjoy. I've been reading and okay. So the problem that I always come to is that I read a whole bunch of stuff before we talk. And then I have too many things I want to talk about. <laughs> so I'm going to take a step back Stephanie, right before you joined, Greg was asking me how I'm doing and how I'm doing is I'm pulling a group improv monthly social event series that I tried to launch here this year in Santa Fe through a creative accelerator program like a, for creative startups. And I'm deciding in the course of this that I feel like I'm swimming upstream and that people involved in this are not taking ownership of this project the way I had hoped. And so I feel like I just want to kill the Buddha. Like I, I just I think I just want to kill this project because it's not doing what I, there's conflict between the kind of flocking that I'm hoping to do with people and the way that they are relating to me as a leader. So this is basically like jazz leadership right here. And you and your wife are masters on this. So I want to embody this in the conversation and just take a step back and let all three of us determine where this unfolds as soon as we pull the cord. Does that sound good? <laughs> all right. That, it sounds fine to me. I'm ready to flow and swing. However we need to. So... If that's fine with Stephanie, that's certainly fine with me. I'm cool with whatever. Yeah. I think we okay. have great people to jam with, so I trust what flows from here. Perfect. In that case, the one thing I do want to make sure that we get to, just as run of course, is just short introductions. So, Stephanie, you've been on the show already. I do want to get to you too, but Greg, I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about who you are and how you have come into doing the work that you're doing now. Okay. Well, as far as a general introduction, I am a writer. I'm organizational leader, both of a business organization, Jazz Leadership Project, and social and civic organizations. The Omni American Future Project is the social, entrepreneurial, and civic organization that I co-lead. 
And I, a lecturer, an educator, I've worn a lot of hats over the course of my life, and I'm still wearing a bunch, but happen not to have a hat on at the moment. But uh, yeah, so maybe that'll suffice. Sure. Stephanie, you... An introduction? Yes, please. Hello. Hello again, Future Fossils. Yes, I'm Stephanie Lepp. I am a producer and a storyteller. I was the executive producer at the Center for Humane Technology, which you might be familiar with from the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. I was then the executive director at the Institute for Cultural Evolution, where I had the pleasure of working with Greg Thomas, although thankfully we are still working together. I'm now in the process of launching Synthesis Media, which is a nonpartisan, nonprofit production studio devoted to producing media that integrates the perspectives of different worldviews in order to build social cohesion and help overcome polarization. But I would say as importantly, in order to fully leverage the ingenuity of humanity, no insight left behind is the tagline that I'm playing with. So with that, yeah, I'll hand it back to you, Michael. Sure. So because this conversation was initially motivated simply by the words jazz leadership, and I was just like, yes, (laughs) this is where we are. We're in a world where I am grateful to observe that people are recognizing the importance of improvisation in a landscape of uncertainty in a way that didn't seem to me like they were even just a few years ago. And so I would really love to, Greg, have you start and then, you know, Stephanie, however you want to riff on this or co-host, run with this however you want. I would really love to hear, there's actually an article by your wife, Jewel Kinch Thomas, on lessons for conversation from Jazz Improv. And maybe that's the right place to start. Like, I would love to hear you talking a little bit about bringing your love for and familiarity with jazz into the space of corporate leadership and into the space of conversation and like how that actually looks and what you actually find yourself teaching people to do. Okay. Well, first of all, jazz is certainly a conversational art form in which the different instruments talk, speak to each other. In fact, my mentor, Albert Murray, actually called art aesthetic statement for that similar reason. These are artistic ways of speaking and being in communion and conversation with one another. So if you look at a big band and you have the different sections or the different ensembles, you have the trumpet section, trombone section, sax session, and the rhythm section, right? Rhythm section, piano, bass, drums. And each section, they're sharing, they're reading. When they're not improvising, they're reading a score of sorts. And they are in conversation with the other sections. Sometimes they're playing with, sometimes they're playing against. And that's true in a smaller ensemble also. So you might have the rhythm section supporting a particular soloists on trumpet or saxophone, say. And they are in a supportive capacity as the trumpeter or saxophonist solos. 
but they're in conversation with each other as they're doing that. They each have roles and responsibilities based on the instrument that they play, but they're not just playing without tuning in and listening deeply to what the others are doing. So there's a call and response dynamic that goes on when oftentimes you hear a soloist who may respond to something that one of the other players does, and they might echo it or do a variation of it. And that's an example of a conversation. The bassist and the drummer in the rhythm section, they're in charge of the rhythmic emphasis of jazz, which is swing. And they do it in a way where they are emphasizing certain beats together, but there's also variation. So there's a tension there. In fact, oftentimes you find that the bass and the drummer, one might say, man, you're dragging the time. And the other one might say, you're going too fast. You need to like slow your roll. So, so it's a negotiation also. There's conversation, but it's negotiating. And the one of the keys and the beauty of the art form is that in that conversation and in that negotiation, you can both express your own individuality, your own way of interpreting how you approach the song, the melody, the harmony, the chords, the mood of the song in your own way, but you're also doing it with a group of people, an ensemble, right? And so, yes, you are definitely expressing you know, who you are, yet your own identity, but you're not doing that in a vacuum. It's in concert and conversation and dialogue with the others. And that's why it's a model for social practices in the society. It's a model for corporations because you have both individual leadership and group collaboration within the art form. And what we do for the jazz or through the Jazz Leadership Project is that we translate, we bridge from the music to the workplace. And we do that through discussing certain principles and practices of jazz that they can then not only understand conceptually, but hear, see, and feel, and then say, ooh, okay, so how can I apply this for myself so that we can be as good as they sound, so we can communicate as well as those musicians are? And that's the goal and aspirational mm -hmm. aspect of what we do. I love that. There's two things I love actually about using jazz the way that you articulated in order to teach, yeah, leadership slash just, yeah, you just called it social practice. One is I think it offers a beautiful vision for the goal. What you just said is like, what, what are we trying to achieve here? Even just within the context of, let's say, equality or justice, like what is the goal? Is it just like everyone gets exactly the equal amount of airtime in some kind of like preordained or top-down way? Or is it within the context of jazz? It's just so we can play, right? So we can just make sure we all have our individuality and yet we're still coordinated as a group. I feel like it's a beautiful vision for where we're trying, we're using these training wheels in order to get to a place where someone can just solo and it can be amazing for all of us. They can enjoy it and we can enjoy it. And then whoever is solo, it can, it can be more of a conversation. So I just think jazz is a beautiful vision for where we want to head, let's say. And then the second thing I love is that beauty is meaningful. How do we know we've succeeded? Not just because everyone feels that they're playing their part, but because it sounds good. 
It's beautiful. It just sounds beautiful and we can tell. So yeah, I love jazz as a metaphor or a training wheels or a framework through which to, but it seems very potent as a way to learn how to coordinate and do our human thing in an effective way. Definitely. is definitely what we refer to as a model, a metaphor. It's a praxis. There's a theoretical dimension that then gets put into action. When you put it into action, that's when you're dealing with a pragmatic orientation to it. So the ideas, once they're put into action, they have impact in the world. That's the foundation of American pragmatism. And it's coming out of American overall context. And within the American context, it was innovated and created by Black Americans, Afro-Americans, Negro-Americans, whatever term you want to use, is a group of people who developed a specific group of practices and responses to the predicaments that they were in. And those responses, those cultural responses, those values, those meanings that were then expressed in particular forms, whether it's folklore, whether it's storytelling and myths, whether it's the music or dance or ways of speaking with and to one another, all of those are a cultural complex. And so jazz is a very high representation of a Black American cultural dynamic, but it's within an American context. So you'll see aspects that are particular to what we call a Black American idiom, but it's still within that American framework. So I'll give you an example. So one of the things my mentor Albert Murray says is that jazz developed within the context of free enterprise. And there's a distinction between free enterprise and capitalism, okay? But the point is that, and it's not necessarily just an economic, it's an orientation to how we engage with one another. You can have competition, but there's also cooperation. In fact, you need to have both. There's confrontation and challenge, but then there's embrace and acceptance. But all of those are part of this free enterprise system where it's not coming down from on high. It's not being dictated by a central committee. None of that. This is within the context of democracy. One of the beauties of jazz is that it actually is an embodiment and an enactment of the realization of democratic principles and values in sound and in action. So it's not just about the theory. We can look at, we can hear it, we can feel it, and we can say and see how individual, individuality is perspective. In fact, one of the fundamental practices of Jazz Leadership Project is your sound. Each one of us has a particular fingerprint and footprint that nobody else has. To me, that's physical evidence of individuality and uniqueness. But we don't have to go to a place or ideology of rugged individualism. <laughs> we respect and honor the classically liberal notion of individuality. But it's still in relation and in conversation with other people. So that's that tension and that's the balance that jazz actually demonstrates in sound. How do we respect what the contributions of each individual person is within the context of a whole. 
How do we do that? Jazz is an example of how that's negotiated and how it actually comes to life. This is exactly where I wanted this to go because Stephanie, a huge piece of what you were doing with Greg and others at Institute for Cultural Evolution and a big piece of the pitch deck that you sent me for Synthesis Media focuses on this kind of thing, like finding new means by which to bring this kind of sensibility into the sphere of American political discourse in ways that are empowered by new technologies rather than just challenged by them. I want to invite you at some point to speak about the anti-debate as (laughs) an example of this. First, I just want to make a point. I'll link to this in the show notes. Ian Leslie at Eon Magazine wrote a piece I really loved a couple years ago called A Good Scrap. Hmm. The tag for this is, disagreements can be unpleasant, even offensive, but they are vital to human reason. Without them, we remain in the dark. And I think about, oh, who was it that was commenting on the, this is probably a bad example, the Grateful Dead keyboardist and his lover and how you could never tell if they were making love or they were fighting. It sounded like two cats. There's like, okay, so there's this piece about from a, an evolutionary biology angle, you've got all of the laissez-faire capitalists that are justifying an unfair competitive economic frame through a misread of Darwinian evolutionary theory. And then you've got this hyperemphasis on the individual and on all against all competition between individuals. And then you've got like Lynn Margulis and her argument that the biosphere is determined primarily by cooperation, that major evolutionary transitions happen in something that looks like jazz where a new level of individuality forms through associations in which like bacteria become obligate dependents and symbiotes with one another inside complex cells. And so like, I know Greg, you also, you're an advisor at Consilience, right? I think a lot of people listening to this are familiar with Dan Schmachtenberger and Zach Stein, both of whom have appeared on this show. And this emphasis on non-zero sum dynamics. But what I want to invite beyond simply just talking about the anti-debate is because both of you have thought about this in terms of psychological development and being able to even move between the two frames of affirming the modern liberal actor and then also understanding it in context of relationality is that requires a level of nuance and of the ability to hold multiple different perspectives in one's mind and to be able to rotate between them. And it's also essential to the kind of constructive argument that Ian Leslie is talking about in his piece, where you're able to take a position without becoming overwhelmed or possessed by the desire to win the argument. And so, yeah, I would love to just steer it in that direction and to comment on that however you see fit. Why don't you go first, Stephanie? Well, I was going to say, go for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, go for it. Maybe, I, maybe I can't. Yeah, maybe I, I don't mind. Can. I can. I definitely can. Well, from the perspective of jazz, 
Yeah. And the Jazz Leadership Project, we have four principles. I'm going to say what the four principles are and emphasize one. The first two are from the individual perspective. The next two are from a group or an ensemble perspective. So the first two, one is individual excellence. To play jazz well, you have to work on your craft. You have to work on your sound. You have to work on your scales, your chords. You have to then not only develop the technical capacity to play along with others and improvise, you have to be able to do it in a way at some point where you're not just sounding like someone else. When you lo- when you grow and you learn, you imitate others. So it's understandable that there are greats who you model and who work on their solos and they inspire you and they really motivate you to develop your own capacities, right? But that has to be an individual commitment to develop those skills, that craft, those habits. Then there's antagonistic cooperation, mm-hmm. which is the term that I think of when I heard what you were saying, Michael, in terms of this article, which in a very basic way is a perspective that says that we will have challenges, we will have conflict, competition, but rather than being things that tear us down, it can actually build us up so that we can learn and grow from it. Then the two that are more group-oriented is shared leadership and ensemble mindset. Shared leadership is basically an idea that says we each have our own leadership capacity and the potential to develop and grow one's leadership, and we respect that capacity in others, and we're able to coordinate and work together in a way where we can each contribute to the whole. Ensemble mindset is even a higher dimensional level where everything is in flow. Everything is swinging, to use that term from jazz. And where the sum is greater, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Something bigger is created in the interaction. So those are the four principles. Antagonistic cooperation, if you want to look at the derivation or the provenance of the term, it actually comes from the hero's journey tradition Hmm. and model. Joseph Campbell Hmm. called that the monomyth. And Joseph Campbell was very influenced by another mythologist, Heinrich Zimmer, who actually coined the expression antagonistic cooperation. That term was a favorite term of two of my favorites, Ralph Ellison and Albert Murray, who I've mentioned. And it's saying you can deal with the tensions, the opposition, the challenges that will come up in life and in one's own journey, but they don't have to be something to tear you down. It can actually build you up. So one can become, let's take trauma, for example. Trauma is real. Tragedy is real, but so is resilience. So is an anti-fragile perspective where one is able to actually not only rebound, but actually get stronger through challenges. That's the ultimate. So I'm saying we have to be able to have these various perspectives through which we can view the way we interact and communicate with each other. But antagonistic cooperation is a very powerful principle 
that we use in Jazz Leadership Project and a lot of the companies we work with, they really gravitate to it because we, it's a very competitive environment that, that companies are mm-hmm. in. So you're competing yeah. for resources, dollars, in the marketplace and this and that. So antagonistic cooperation is, a, I think, a, a strong way of describing what you were referring to, Michael. Well, I'm glad you went first because now I can actually, yeah, I'm happy to explain what an anti-debate is in this context. And then I'm going to, and then I'm going to ask you a question about jazz. So yes, the idea of an anti-debate is that, and this idea has come from various places. Peter Lindbergh has written about it, but it definitely draws from Socratic dialogue and other ancient traditions. But the idea is that in a traditional debate, only one perspective can win right, which incentivizes straw manning, right? It behooves me to make your, my opponent's position sound weaker in order to make my position sound stronger. In an anti-debate, and an anti, we don't totally know what it is, it's more of a concept still than a full-fledged kind of templated practice. But the idea of an anti-debate is that the person who quote-unquote wins is the person who best integrates the other people's perspectives into their own position, which would incentivize steel manning. Because I'm going to have to really be listening to what you're saying in good faith if I'm going to find some nugget of gold in there that I want to incorporate into my point of view, right? And so theoretically, you could say political debates or a presidential debate could be and perhaps should be an anti-debate. Perhaps the person who wins should be the person who takes the best ideas no matter where they come from. But an anti-debate doesn't fully exist yet in this kind of format. Again, we see it, we see flavors of this, obviously, in Socratic dialogue, in the Jewish practice of Hevruta, in Judaism. We are supposed to only study Talmud in pairs because the idea is by virtue of having different perspectives. That is how we sharpen each other's intellect, right? We are antagonistically cooperating to wrestle with and understand the Talmud. But when I talk about the anti-debate with people, and I am, I am working on a project, bring the anti-debate to life first, figure out the terms, how does it work, what are the steps, like we know how a debate works, produce basically like a version 1.0 how-to guide, produce a video so that people can see what it looks like. It would probably have to be scripted on a stage with podiums, or it could be artificial intelligence. Perhaps it's a deep fake artificial intelligence versions of Thomas Jefferson and Frederick Douglass that show us what an anti-debate looks like, but either way, a video that allows people to see what it looks like. And then we have, and this is very version 1.0, but we have then product that we can share with platforms, with hosts like Michael, as a model of something that they can do on their show. But as I've been talking about this concept with people, sometimes people, I just want to be really, this is not replacing debate. I would say let schools have a debate club and let them have an anti. You go to the debate club to crystallize, to do the individual excellence, right? You crystallize your perspective. And then you go to the anti-debate club, maybe in this framework, to do the antagonistic cooperation, right? To bring your individual excellence and integrate with other. I don't know if it perfectly maps onto your four principles, Greg, but in my mind, It's like we cultivate these different capacities, let's say, and then we can come together and do the, and ultimately then do the ensemble mindset. Once we have all these capacities, then we can really just let it flow. Then we can just let the music we play surprise us. Like we don't even know what we're going to play, but we trust the fact that we know how to be individually excellent. We know how to do antagonism. We know how to do the debate. We know how to do the anti-debate. Now we can just come together and let whatever emerges 
surprise us. But the question then that I would ask you is, I'm curious about the chronology. Is there a chronology? I imagine individual excellence is first, but is there like a non-jazz thing we need to do first thing in order to get ready to learn how to play jazz? Or what is the kind of trajectory of the pedagogy here? If I understand your question correctly, and you can tell me based on my answer whether I did, I think that in jazz, one has to mean in any craft, you have to learn the basics, the fundamentals. So what are the fundamentals of, of communication? What are the goals of communication? And what's the context that we're dealing in? Now, from a pedagogical and educational perspective, you start with the basics so that you have a ground and foundation to build upon. And that goes, of course, from primary to secondary school to college and postgraduate. So it seems to me that if we use the liberal arts college model as a central place that we can hold on to for a second, because the ideal of the liberal arts has to do with developing one's capacity and one's knowledge and the foundation for knowledge in a general way where you have an understanding of what are the humanities about? What are the sciences about? What about the arts and social sciences, humanities, social sciences, hard sciences? And this is a foundation for lifelong learning. And then you can specialize as you go to grad school by focusing on particular areas. So in order to play jazz, let's say we're talking about how do we develop skills of citizenship? What are the fundamental skills of citizenship? Well, to do that, we need to have an understanding of some of the fundamental principles and values that this country represents. Where do you find that? You find that in the founding documents. You find that in the Declaration of Independence, Constitution, Bill of Rights, and other great examples of either speeches or writings that embody the aspirational direction of the United States of America. It's the aspirational aspects of freedom and liberty and justice and equality that has inspired millions of people to come to this country. So we can't downplay the vision and the values of the United States of America because it's a beacon and a magnet and it has been for me and it still is, okay? With mm -hmm. all of the warts, with all of the flaws, with all of the horrific history, it still remains a beacon of possibility that inspires folks, right? So need to have a fundamental understanding of those. So those could be analogized to understanding your basic scales and the harmonic chord changes and the songs of a particular tradition. In jazz, it's the American songbook, the blues, certain song forms. And you learn those to be able to be in a position to play, right? Totally, yeah. yes. And the reason that I ask is, so then what's the analogy to that? Because let's say within the context of justice or social justice or even democracy, I feel like there's a little bit of like, why aren't we playing jazz yet? Well, there are some things we need. We need to learn our basic scales first, but it's we're almost like a little bit impatient. 
it's cool. The basic scales are on the way to jazz, right? So I don't know what you would equate to basic scales, but I would say those fundamental principles, the fundamental principles upon which the nation was founded, even though mm, okay. they limited it. This is this book right here by Danielle Allen, Justice uh -huh. by Means yeah. of Democracy. She discusses how the founders, the, the fundamental flaw, aside from, of course, servitude, domination, enslavement, of course, but was that it's not that they had the wrong principles. And it's not just that they were hypocrites. It was that they were too narrow and limited in their, their ability to have the vision and the capacity to offer that to a wider swath of people, not just propertied males who are racialized as white. That was the, that's the fundamental flaw. So the aspiration and goal of this incredible book is to lay out very comprehensively and methodically a way for us to expand our, our justice by means of democracy through certain principles and practices in social, economic, and political domains, and through particular cultural practices. So, for example, a fundamental principle of this book is what she calls power-sharing liberalism. We have to literally share power, and we have to empower others so that they can engage in the civic and political process. Another principle Amen. is non-domination. Mm. We find that domination, and not just in modernity, but let's talk about modernity in particular, where the idea of the sovereign man or male, right? Because this is where it shows up and has shown up most. A sovereign individual. But then if you take from that, that where you have a narrow vision of I think, therefore, I am. And you look at the blessings of nature around you that you did not create, that you were born into. And rather than respecting and honoring nature, as was done in earlier times by people that in some traditions they call pre-traditional peoples, but there was a fundamental respect for nature. So what do you do? You extract from it. You use it. You try to dominate it. So the principle of non-domination is a fundamental principle that she and other scholars are trying to put forth for how we move forward as an American democracy. So we got to have people get to a place where they can understand what these values are, what these principles are, the meaning of them, mm -hmm. and how we have either violated them or how we can make them real, both ourselves individually mm -hmm. and in our engagements with other people and institutions. So I'm glad you brought up Daniel Allen's book. I, actually, I wanted to bring up in this conversation an article, another article written by your wife, Jewel, on reciprocity <laughs> yeah, and the ebb and flow of relationship yes, yes. I love this. I love this thing. I love, cause I think about this all the time. I, I had the tea fairy on the show long ago and we were talking about this 
again, like if you include the sort of axis of scale, that discovering the microbiome and discovering the wood wide web, all the mycorrhizal affiliations underground in the woods, all these things, the more we learn about the biosphere, the more we realize that we're like babes in a cradle that are completely unaware of how much work goes into supporting us. Like the way, <laughs> not super, not a super fan of like the term ecosystem services because financialization of everything makes me deeply anxious. But I remember in college hearing one of my biology professors make the point that the, all of the money measured in the human economy is like less than 10% of what it would cost to restore like the water cycle and the carbon cycle and like create breathable air and drinkable water if we destroyed those things that there's not enough money in the world by an order of magnitude so like this is where the gratitude <laughs> comes back in right and so anyway danielle allen's book as far as this relates to life in human society like the question i want to pose to the two of you has to do with again this point that was made by Peter Lindbergh about like a speculative anti-debate stuff that shared this passage that he wrote in your pitch deck, which was about how like perhaps conceding to agree to disagree would be like losing a point in the debate. And yet like we need viewpoint diversity and like there is a reason that there are individual organisms and individuals like breeding populations that not interbreeding in the biosphere, right? There, there are natural boundaries that create this kind of these productive tensions of like this synthetic and generative antagonism in the biosphere. Yeah, like there's a reason why you need different ingredients to bake a cake. (laughs) Right, right. It can't just all blend together into one homogeneous monocropped like like Blade Runner. It's just like it's just people. But even in Blade Runner 2049, it's like there's different kinds of humanoid (laughs) beings, right? So it's like anyway. What I'm getting at is that like Daniel Allen says quote that your wife uses in this article. Reciprocity concerns the relational ethic that citizens have with one another, the ability to look one another in the eye, the ability to propose the need for redress or grievance, and to be secure in the expectation that redress will be possible within constraints of reasonableness and rights. And yet, we're at a point in history where it seems like, like I think about just how like what a rude awakening it was for people to realize after Hurricane Katrina that FEMA was not helping, that I had friends living down there that were in like risking imprisonment from the United States government because they were leaving their homes to help their neighbors because no one was coming to help. And so like, I think about power and conflict, not just between people on this scale, right, but between the individual and the state and also like economic systems that we've become dependent on for convenience due to economies of scale. So like the last piece I have, and I don't even know like if this question is making sense, but take it wherever you want. I was on Facebook this morning talking with Tamsin Woolley Barker and Tamsin said, I'm excited about AI because finally we'll have to drop the delusion that we can scale the mutual trust required to be a whole human and community. We'll trust people we know physically our worlds will grow smaller and richer. And the next thing you know, we'll be human again. And I was like, yeah, that's a nice 
idea, but then there's also the part about something we talk about on the show a lot is that for some people, it's a privilege to be able to retreat from an urban environment and go homesteading and like grow all your own food and unschool your kids. And, and for other people, they're going to be caught in a food desert when supply chains fail. And so I don't know what I'm getting at, except I think like there's something about the nexus of all of these conversations about what a social contract actually means, what it means to like, in what ways, like agreeing to disagree is a failure and in what way is it it's a success? Like what are the conditions where it's actually to our benefit to like bring things back to a smaller organizational scale. And then the fact is that we all still live in a sort of global situation now. I don't know. That's just everything I felt like throwing on the table for <laughs> y'all to riff on. There's a lot there. I'm not quite sure where it seems this definitely has a entry point. I'm happy to try to, yeah, respond. I'll be carved uh, uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I forget how you framed it, but I would maybe ask, I don't, it's like, when do we, when is, yeah. I mean, there's a question there, I think, about under what circumstances is disagreement productive versus destructive, or is it about the disagreement itself and there are just some forms of disagreement that are inherently more productive than others? I think it's probably a little both. I don't have like an immediate kind of, I think maybe the way to, that I would connect it back to Greg is something like, I love these four principles because again, I think if you really, and I get that the last one is a little more emergent, the ensemble mind. It's like once we have like developed our capacity for individual excellence and antagonistic collaboration, and that allows us to do the shared leadership, then we can be in like, and so there's something about learning these different capacities that then allows you to not have to like figure out as much, like what kind of disagreement do we want to have versus not, it's like, then we can more just be in the flow maybe and allow the productive disagreement to emerge and surprise it. That said, yeah, I think there are, I think there are forms of disagreement, let's say, that are more productive than others. I I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. There's also something there maybe about, yeah, it's the holding of the we are individual and we are a collective. We are all unique snowflakes and we are one. And once we fully inhabit both of those realities, we just have infinitely more ingredients to work with, right? Like when people, it's like right now we're in this moment of, let's say, it's like it was black and white and now gray it's like no you realize you just collapsed from two shades into one right like can't we just have black white and gray can't we just have like all the colors let's go for all of them but there is and this is why i was curious about the pedagogy is like we don't just start with every single color like maybe we start with black and white i am a parent of young children so some things are black and white it's like you hold my hand when we cross the street you wear your seatbelt in the car starting with black and white, like here's an example. And then maybe I'll kick it back to Greg. So I'm starting with, it's like, you can't, like, what would I say? My daughter's not old enough yet, but some, it's like, you can't, you obviously can't drive after drinking. And so some, she'll come back to me eventually and be like, but guess what? I can sleep in my car. <laughs> and so it'll, it'll go from black and white to gray to, I don't know. I don't know if that's a good example, but either way, yeah, there's something about starting with fewer ingredients maybe and having them each be clear and then, and then eventually having more and more ingredients that include the more ingredients also include the we are one. We can like eventually 
have it all in a way. I don't know if that made sense. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Over to you, Greg. <laughs> well, as far as the music, if you want to take it back to the original point about it being conversational, I could play examples of two or more instrumentalists playing together and playing in a way where you're not quite sure if it is competition or cooperation or collaboration, because it's all of that. So there's something in leadership called situational leadership. So, Michael, we could be abstract and theoretical and say, well, if you agree to disagree, that means it's situational. That's what Stephanie's example shows. There are situations based on the developmental level of who you're dealing with where something is going to be more appropriate than other. There is black and white. Not only are black and white actual colors, but <laughs> if you are trying to protect a child who doesn't know any better, certain things are not up for discussion. It's just the way it is. As they get older and they grow and develop, their understanding grows, then you can have conversations about more things as they grow because you are preparing them to become the old expression productive contributors to society. You're preparing them to become adults. And being an adult and maturing means that you are able to not only exercise certain freedoms, that you're able to exercise responsibility, good judgment. And that takes time because we develop not just cognitively, but emotionally. Sometimes we have emotional drives that will override the cognitive. You might know that something's right or wrong, but you've got a drive to try or to experiment. So it's really situational. It's a situational thing where I don't think we need to say either or. Sometimes, as you suggested, Stephanie, it's both and. So we would have to see. But getting back to jazz, you have instances like the great Dizzy Gillespie when he had Sonny Rollins and Sonny Stitt playing together. And there's a famous song called The Eternal Triangle, where the, it's a fast, blistering song. And Sonny Stitt and Sonny Rollins end up going head to head, trading expressions, trading phrases. Now, the thing about antagonistic cooperation that's so powerful is that it was competitive, but it was also cooperative at the same time. And that's a, a cultural form that says you can state what your perspective. I can state my perspective. I don't have to be in unison with what you said. I have my own take on it. I have my own angle on it. And we can go back and forth and it can create something that's beautiful, even if we come mm -hmm. from different perspectives. I'll give you another example using Sonny Rollins. Sonny Rollins' style from the beginning of when he got came on the scene in the early 50s, very big sound, intense in his... I remember seeing him, I'm going to come back to the example, I remember seeing him at Carnegie Hall playing with Branford Marsalis. And this was in pretty sure the 90s. <laughs> and Branford Marsalis of his generation is definitely one of the top saxophonists, tenor saxophonists in particular of his generation, no question. And he is very studied and schooled. I've seen Branford 
play a song and he'll play in the style of Coleman Hawkins. Then he'll play in the style of Lester Young. Then he'll play in the style of Wayne Shorter. Then in the style of Sonny Rollins. So when they started playing together, Branford was playing early Sonny to Sonny. But what was the difference? When Sonny Rollins blew and the first note, it was like a Mack truck. His sound so completely overwhelmed Branford that it was like, oh my God. <laughs> so, so, so back to Sonny. So that was just a little aside. But Sonny Rollins went through a period where he wasn't playing with piano players. He was playing with guitarists or sometimes just the bass and the drums. And there's a, there is a great guitarist, Jim Hall, who is like the yin to Sonny's yang. Is one wrong and the other right? No. So it's not so black and white. Sometimes it's a matter of style, differences in the way that you do things. So, so there's a lot of dimensions to us. I was trying to expand the way that, you know, yeah. you deal with it, Michael, and, and confront it, Mike, without, I may not be giving you a direct answer, but I'm trying to say it's more, more complex and more, and more nuanced and situational. Thank you. Yeah. Let me pull just one, one like thread out of that yarn ball I rolled <laughs> over to you. Cause you know, I think one of the things speaking of the situatedness of all of this, speaking of the contextual piece, we're having this conversation at a time where it feels like a lot of the conversations that I've been having on the show over the last couple of years, especially are about the, you know, trying to see the challenge to the collapse of some of the institutions and the systems that most of us listening to this, I think, grew up taking for granted, even on both sides, like not just systems of oppression also are being refigured right now. And so like, there is a piece of this, which is like, yeah, it's good sometimes for there to be the opportunity that was, I think back like in the nineties and just like how everything was so like raw global village, like let's, it was the script about like unifying everything and bringing it together and then over the, the last, like in science, like people were talking about the theory of everything, like a grand unifying theory. And I don't hear scientists talking about that anymore. I hear people talking about bringing multiple models to bear on things that no one model is sufficient. And the way that it is enacted socially is through this, um, like we, we live in the United States. And in some respect, all of us have a contract with and a responsibility to one another. And it's to our deficit, it's to our detriment that we act as if that is untrue. But we're also facing, you know, what, like, I love what Doug Rushkoff called fractal noia, which is kinds of mental and social pathologies that come from connecting everything to everything else. And like, we, we suffer the spread of a pandemic or cascading bank failures because we've pursued that kind of unifying logic to its extreme. And now we're, it seems like when I say we, I mean like American society is figuring out how to back down from that somewhat or like figuring out the importance of backing 
of figuring out how to survive when we're being forced to back down from that because the systems are failing. So yeah, I don't know. If I could, yeah. I, mean, I, I would think of it maybe as like a right sizing rather. It's like, and this is very, this is me coming from my integral perspective. The way that I would tell that story maybe is something like once upon a time, we came up with a way of doing things and we were like, this way is the one and only right way of doing And then the circumstances changed. And so we had to develop new way of doing things. We were like that previous way. Oh my, that was brought like, this is the way that we should do. And then circumstances changed again. And we had to come And after a while. We were like, wait a second, I'm noticing a pattern here. <laughs> Perhaps the current way is not the forever and always right way of doing things. Like, thank God we've given birth to so many ways of doing things. Like, wow, like different ways are useful in different circumstances. Some ways we're ready to just leave off the table forever because they sucked and we only use them in an emergency situation. For the most part, thank God for the cornucopia of ways. And I would even say the global village is like a way that is maybe not useful in all or even most circumstances. But think, look at this cornucopia, just look at the abundance. What an abundance. And again, very clear, some ways we're just ready to never go back to slavery, we're done. But other ways, it's like, yeah, it's not plan A, it's not plan B, maybe it's plan C or Z. But generally, yeah, I think this is maybe the shift, let's say from first tier to second tier, now I'm getting jargony, but you get to a place where you can actually just stop doing the current way right, previous way wrong, and just look at all of the ways and right size them and see them as a like a veritable abundance of like, just like abundance of and production of just human ingenuity and creativity. I've got to get my computer charger before my computer cuts off. <laughs> <laughs> so I apologize. What is he going to say? No, no, no. <laughs> I'll be my what? <laughs> I'll be right back. I'm sorry. Okay. No, I'll that's be right back. No Okay. <laughs> Maybe that can be like a cut to music. <laughs> yeah. Hold intermission. Yeah. No jazz. Jazz. Cut to jazz. Or yeah, this is this episode will be a good episode for me to. I just dropped some of the recordings from that improv sessions thing I've been doing and. After reading some of Greg's writing on the matter, I'm not sure that it's actually jazz. I don't know that it qualifies. Uh, that, that's maybe a good question to start the post intermission is what is your definition of jazz? Yeah. I don't know, if Greg, if you can hear us. Oh, there oh. we go. Hi, Greg. Hello. So after my thing, we just cut to music. <laughs> We just cut to music and then we're going to come back. Gre or Michael, would you like to ask the question? Well, yeah. No, or, would he, or, yeah or would you like to respond or anything? I yeah. think one thing that I want to foreground here that maybe like implied by the conversation so far, but I don't know that we've made it super explicit, is that you've worked as a jazz writer and critic in a number of different print and web publications now for decades. And that's the kind of, that's, informing and in inspiring a lot of this what we haven't really done because like some of the writing on your jazz leadership blog is about the way and because this is this will get us i think ultimately to i want to talk about deracialization because this is such an such a key piece of some of your recent writings and appearances but maybe we can do it through defining jazz and then referencing some of what you have said about the way that certain artists have 
claimed jazz when what they're doing isn't really jazz as a way of selling the cool of jazz and selling their work through the cool of jazz. And that anyway, I'll, this could get spicy, but I'm here for it. So maybe you want to define jazz and what it's not, and then we can jump across the ravine into that other stuff. Sure. First, let me say that I will use the title of a recent movie that won a lot of Oscars last year in response to what you said before. And that is everything, everywhere, all at once. <laughs> that's my response to that. This, that's what it is. It's oh, yeah. everything, everywhere, all at once. That's the so situation the is, now. Does everything, everywhere, all at once include nothing, nowhere, never? Because <laughs> it's also not sausage, right? What's not that's sausage? Kind of the, What's not sausage? Like, that's, it's, we don't, it's not just gray, right? We still can have black and white. We, ha we have the capacity for everything, everywhere, all at once. And we maintain the capacity for nothing, nowhere, never. Oh, sure. That's definitely, it's not, because, that's because you have a phrase that signifies one thing, it doesn't mean that the complement or the counter to that or the the other side of the coin isn't there too. So I would say yes and, which is an expression that comes out of improv theater and improv comedy. So yes and. Cool. All right. <laughs> now to John, to, to John S. Horn Hargens actually when he was on the show talking about how to understand like the UFO phenomenon, talked about the how it's not enough to think of things as like true or false when you're researching the weird. And he says like, so the Buddhist logic, something can be true, false, both true and false or neither true nor false. Mm. And that's that kind of quadratic yes, thinking like both of you are calling us into, but anyway. All right. So let me just say this about UFOs. Do you ever wonder why the picture is always grainy? <laughs> Do you ever wonder why when they have these cameras that could be Lord knows how far away and they can zoom in on fine details that never happens with UFOs? Just asking a question. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'll just leave it. I'll just leave that there. Huh. Shots fired. As Arsenio Hall used to say, makes you want to go, hmm. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So, uh, to answer your question regarding the definition of jazz, now this is a this is a a loaded question in that over the course of jazz's history, starting in the at the turn of the century into New Orleans being the place where there was a lot of consolidation of various musical forms that came together and you had a combination of blues and marching band music, ragtime, you had all these different things. And then and that's like a more of a collective dynamic. And then you have great soloists who surfaced. Sidney Bechet on soprano saxophone and clarinet, Louis Armstrong on cornet and trumpet. And it became identified with the great soloists. So Jazz is many things. Jazz is a cultural art form. Jazz is a way of being in the world. Jazz is 
a cultural art form and a cultural technology is both. Jazz has certain elements to it that are fundamental. And I think that's where you would begin. So some of the fundamental aspects of jazz are a particular orientation to the fundamentals of music. The fundamentals of music are melody, harmony, tone color or timbre, and rhythm. So rhythmically, and this is when you talk about any musical style, it's the rhythm that makes the music the music. You could have a melodic form. You could have Mary Had a Little Lamb. And if it has a certain groove and beat, it could be looked at as a reggae tune. If it has the swing rhythm, that's jazz. Not that every single song has the sing rhythm, but swing is fundamental to jazz. Blues is fundamental to jazz. Is every song a blues? Of course not. But the blues is not only a 12 bar form, 12 measure form, but the blues is an orientation to life. It has philosophical dimensions. So blues is a foundation. Swing is a foundation. Swing and these certain metaphors you have to use. When you have the origins of a musical form like like jazz coming from a people who were enslaved and didn't have the ability to have control over their movements, how far they can go. And if they went far, they had to show proof, all that kind of stuff. You have an orientation towards freedom. So now we're talking about certain qualities that are embodied in jazz. There's something about freedom in jazz. So when you have the drummer in the swing rhythm, what is he doing? He's riding the cymbal. It's a movement metaphor. What is the bass player doing? He's walking. So these metaphors are describing parts of the music's spirit, okay? But you have the drummer and the bassist who are carrying forth this swing rhythm, which is usually like four, four time or three, four time. And when you hear it, you know what it is. When we're talking about swing, bass walks, the drummer's riding the cymbal, and it gives a buoyancy on which the soloist can ride. It's like the swing rhythm is like a wave that a soloist can play over, can ride that wave. You have to ultimately use certain metaphors. Improvisation is fundamental to jazz. So we've got swing rhythm, you've got improvisation, and we've got a blues, not only form, but a blues sensibility. That's a part of jazz, just as fundamental elements, right? So when we talk about what's not jazz, if it's missing some of those basic elements, it's not evaluating other musical forms and saying that they're bad. It's just saying it's not jazz. You know what I mean? So if you look at rock music, it has some of those elements, okay? And that's where you get into levels of technical sophistication in music. So Albert Murray talked about folk art, popular art, fine art, okay? So basic blues forms is basically like a folk form, okay? But you can have pop versions of that, right? Like there's a lot of rock tunes, they're popular, it's got a blues form. But when you're talking about fine art, you're talking about a couple of things. And jazz at its best is a fine art. So we're talking about the capacity 
in your aesthetic statement to encompass a deeper and richer range of human emotion and human feeling than you can find in other forms in both folk and pop. We're also talking about the realm of masterpieces where there are masters and grandmasters that create work, that create solos, improvisations, songs that become masterpieces and that therefore as a masterpiece maintains a certain timelessness. That's what you're talking about, classic. Something that stands the test of time. So masterpieces have a timelessness. So when you look at something created by Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Greek, Greek sculpture, some of the African sculptures that are just wonders to behold. They may have been made in a particular time and place, but their value remains such that the quality and what is evoked from it in terms of the level of human achievement that it represents, it's not as time-bound as certain folk and pop arts are, okay? So I'm getting into a lot of like almost aesthetic theory here, but now to go to what you were suggesting. So take someone like Kenny G, all right? Now in the jazz world, Kenny G is the butt of a lot of jokes, is the butt of a lot of derision. Why? Because, and I always say this, Kenny G has a beautiful sound. Kenny G can play the saxophone well. There's just no question about it. But it's not so much Kenny G himself. It's the way that the music industry, the radio industry, the mainstream press, they will put the label of jazz on him. And I don't think that's accurate. Okay. He improvises, but you rarely, if ever, hear him with a swing beat. Okay. He has some elements of the blues in his playing because he's a good player. I remember Kenny G when he was with the Jeff Lauber back in the 70s. He's been around a long time. But it's how do you compare him to another Kenny G, Kenny Garrett, who is probably the most influential alto saxophonist of his generation? He is recognized within jazz, but in terms of popularity, can't compare to a Kenny G, but that doesn't mean that the aesthetic quality and weight of the two are same just because they're popular or one is able to command an audience of thousands of people and make a lot of money. There's a distinction between aesthetic value and influence of an artist, because that's one measure. How influential is an artist within the art form? In sports, how influential is someone in terms of being able to not just win championships, but the way they play is so influential that they influence others? These are different ways of evaluating artistic and aesthetic worth within a form. Okay. So, as far as race, I think you're probably talking about some of the pieces that I recently wrote on the blog, my Tune Into Leadership blog, where it's, it's a piece that's in a book called Ain't But A Few Of Us. And it's a account of basically Black American music writers. 
and about jazz in particular. And relative to the number of people who are writing about the art form and who are looked at as authorities, well, there's not a lot of us. I'm talking about Black Americans, ethnically and culturally. I'm not talking racially, okay? So I make that distinction. So in this essay, I take on the issue of race and jazz. I take on the issue of why are certain artists more popular than others? Why is it that Chris Bodie and Nora Jones, and I forget the other person I named in my latest piece, why is it that they can develop this big following and playing a less experimental, very mellow style of music? Now, one of the things I say is that I don't fault those artists. They have their particular style. That's their choice. And what the radio industry and the mainstream press and popularity in popular culture, if they become more popular in that domain, that's fine. Some of it has to do with the legacy of race and racialization. That doesn't mean they're not good musicians. That doesn't mean that they don't have integrity. That's why these are nuanced discussions. It's a part of the picture, but race that is, but it's, a, it's far from the whole picture when you're talking about an art form like, like jazz. Hopefully that, lo that long riff at least touched on some of the things you were looking for, I hope, Michael. Oh, definitely. Before, it might be just like a, uh... We rip off the Band-Aid and go straight into deracialization. <laughs> Stephanie, do you want to say anything before we, we dive into that? No, I probably can't say too much after half past. But Me either. Oh, yeah, we don't have much time, unfortunately. We might just make this a teaser for <laughs> the other stuff. Sure. I really appreciate both of you doing this. and I, Yeah, but I do just want to give you, Greg, the opportunity to point to, and I'll link to some of the stuff in the show notes. Because I think that, like, all of the stuff that we've been talking about up to this point in the call describes a set of competencies or like a kind of, psycholo set of a psychological fluency that brings us up to the course you taught on culture and cosmos and comments you've made in conversation with Glenn Lowry elsewhere about why it's time to invite people into something beyond racist essentialism. And because, especially because I've talked about cultural somatics on this show already, I don't know if we have time for it, but feel free to like at least make an advertisement <laughs> for people to follow up on and encounter this part of your work. Well, they can find some of this on tuneintoleadership.com. They can find my some pieces at the developmentalists of the Institute for Cultural Evolution. They can find some at Free Black Thought, a particular online platform where I've been publishing. What you're referring to is my take on what's called cultural intelligence. The name of a course that I taught several years ago was Cultural Intelligence, Transcending Race, Embracing Cosmos. In that course, we actually look at culture through various lenses. One of my key points is that race and culture is not the same thing. 
Matter of fact, they are very distinct and it's important to make that clear distinction so you don't keep confusing and conflating them. That's one thing. And once you can make that separation between race and culture, race as something that was created for the very purpose of divide and conquer, for the very purpose of putting some people who are racialized as white in the numero uno position, whether you say white supremacy, white superiority, that was real. There's no question about it. That is based on a fallacious idea of race, which basically says that there are different species among human beings, not just one human species. You've got a species that's called black, and they are a lesser species of human being. Check out how insidious that very idea is. Feel into how insidious that shit is, okay? And you have some others who are racialized as white, and they represent all that's good, okay? What the whole issue with cultural intelligence that's so important is that we started the course with cultural literacy. What is culture? How does culture work? And what can culture do? Okay. How can we not only be used by culture, how can we use culture to liberate ourselves from some of the mental and social, psychological, institutional strictures that we get caught up in, this matrix, this racial matrix? Then there's cultural intelligence, which means how do we solve problems through culture in a very basic way? It means more than that, but we don't have much time. But what are we striving for? What are we trying to get to? Cultural wisdom is what we're trying. That's where we're trying to land, where the values and the meanings that we derive from what's most important to us spiritually and culturally. And by cultural, not just us as individuals, but us in relation to others. What are the things that we're going to emphasize there? What are we going to identify as false and foolish? And then how can we get from under the net, the matrix of race as an idea, racialization as a process through which race is created, a racial worldview, which is looking at the world through the lens of race where I'm in a racial world and I'm a racial agent in that world, as opposed to I am a cultural agent in a cultural world and I'm a cultural agent in that cultural world. Just those distinctions and however that landed in your body, to me is indicative of the distinctions that we're talking about, right? So cultural somatics. We had a session dealing with cultural somatics where we dealt with trauma, where we dealt with individual trauma, where we dealt with group trauma, and where we dealt with larger societal trauma. We dealt with each of those levels because we have to be able to confront the trauma that has been, the havoc that has been wreaked upon us in the West for several hundred years now through this fallacious concept of race through this very dangerous, deleterious process called racialization, through this demi-reality, Bhaskar, this demi-reality called a racial worldview, where you have disunity within difference rather than tolerance, 
or even be able to leverage difference in a very mature way. So I've said a lot there, and it is a little teaser, but hopefully through what I said and the way I said it, you can tell where I stand on some of these issues and what directions I think we should move into and what I think we should avoid and move away from. Awesome. Mm. Thank you both for not only the time you've allocated to this call and the like insane amount of scheduling that this required. <laughs> yeah, folks don't know. It took us like four months to get this. Yeah, well, I'm glad we finally but, were able to do it. But also for the work that you're doing out in the world and just for being, I think of you both as guiding lights, as inspirations to people that are trying to figure out how to think and live through these issues and these concerns and like, how do we, how do we do it? Like, how do we pull this off? So thanks you both. If I could yeah. say one last little, Please do. Yeah. last little attempt at an advertisement for Greg, mm. tying it back to jazz, I would say something like, what is the goal? What are we trying to do here? What is within the context of racial justice? What is the goal? If we were to think of it as jazz, maybe is like being able to play jazz together, then the question might be, how can we relate to race in a way that serves our capacity to play jazz? And for that, you can go and read well, <laughs> those articles. And for me, you can and for me, you can find me. Keep in touch with me on Twitter at Steph Lev. <laughs> and thank you, Michael. Greg, sorry, did you want to say something else? Yeah, I was just going to say, I would just, re I'm always going to replace race with culture. To be able to play, okay. to be able to play on the level we're talking about in our society and amongst each other. And because that's the thing about jazz, the question is, can you play? I think yeah. race gets in the way of us being able to play well together and as well as we could. Awesome. All yeah. right. Thanks, y'all. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode and would love to hear your reflections in the open Future Fossils Discord server or in the patrons-only Facebook group. You can also find me on threads, regardless of my ambivalence about joining yet another social platform. It's always exciting when something fresh and clean and the newsfeed isn't algorithmic yet. So find me there. And... One last big announcement. I will be starting a six-week online course with Nura Learning on Jurassic Worlding, which is my book in progress about science and philosophy of the analog digital transition as seen through the lens of the Jurassic Park books and films. This is going to be a really exciting and intimate discussion and study group. I will be leading watch-alongs and reading discussion groups for each of the six Jurassic Park films and a whole cornucopia of related short online content. This is a course hosted by Neuro Learning, my friend Jeremy Johnson's project, and it starts again the evening of August 1st and proceeds for six consecutive Tuesdays. Everything will be recorded if you can't make the sessions live, and then we're going to have a really lively and dynamic asynchronous chat in the Neuro Learning Mighty Networks app. Also, everyone who signs up for that course gets access to all of the patrons-only Facebook and Discord stuff. So, I mean, it's quite a deal. If you're listening to the show and you want a discount code for the course, Future Fossil, 
at checkout. Go to neuralearning.org. That's N-U-R-A, learning.org. Find me, find Jurassic Worlding, hit Future Fossil at checkout. And I look forward to riffing with you all at the intersection of runaway technologies, capitalization of science, (laughs) digital cinema, sense-making crisis, and just good old-fashioned rampant dinosaur fun. Thanks again so much for listening. I will have a new episode of Future Fossils for you every week, at least through the remainder of the month, as I try to get this show back up to cruising altitude. Stay tuned, subscribe, like, review, share, and have a most excellent week.